welcome back to the shul show to each and every one of you thank you so much for joining i hope that the new shul show is going to be a lot more fun than the old one it's going to be a lot more condensed it's going to be a lot more uh to the point uh have different topics every single week that we discuss from a lore perspective and uh yeah hopefully it's really good i really hope that you all have come prepared because we have a lot of things to discuss tonight and we'll start right off the bat let's talk about the new spoilers now uh, i don't know how many people have seen it because funnily enough wowhead have not covered it but there is a bunch of cutscenes from 10.1 now i'm a little bit peeved that these cutscenes have been data mined in, in like that these cutscenes already exist it's not what i would consider it to be necessary I, I loved the fact that in 1007, for example, none of the story was revealed until finally we got to um, to the actual launch. Uh, I, I don't know why these specific cutscenes have been data mineable or even playable, because it's there, you can see it. And I think, I think that really does the game a huge disservice, mainly because it allows people to see a story that is not yet finished, a story that is probably not yet in its fullness. So a lot of conclusions tend to be drawn from cinematics that is out of place and you don't yet have the full questline that links the things together. So uh, just on that, I, I really hope that Blizzard stop doing this. Just let people see the story when the story launches. But anyways, let's talk about this. We're not going to watch the cinematic. That's not what we're going to do during the shell show. But I'm going to tell you what the cinematic is all about, what this uh, cutscenes, it's not really cinematic, it's more cutscenes. And it is a series of cutscenes. You can see that there is actual quest lines linking the cutscenes together. So the it is there. And, and um, I, I'm excited to finally play the quest lines once the game goes live. But okay, let's talk about this. It starts off with Abyssian and Sibelian. And they are inside the caverns and they're hunting for Rack. And it really starts off with them sort of planning their massive incursion. They're going to attack for Rack now. And then for wounds Sibelian. Uh, Sibelian is wounded by the Shadow Flame. And this is where we sort of get our first insights into what Shadow Flame actually does. And we're really going to spend a lot of time after this discussion talking about how Shadow Flame is completely different to almost every other magic source that we know about in World of Warcraft, at least, because these cutscenes really do give us a lot of insight into what exactly is Shadow Flame. But Abyssian is wounded, and the Shadow Flame is causing immense pain to Abyssian, to the point where he says he can feel the Shadow Flame creeping towards his soul like the shadow flame is speaking to him it's whispering to him and in this whisper it's driving him crazy he then exclaims that this is what drove his father mad this shadow flame now put a pen in that because potential retcon but also i don't think that it's a retcon and i'll explain why i don't think so Anyways, Abyssian then plans this whole elaborate thing of using totems and then drawing the Shadow Flame out of Abyssian and, uh, you know, us basically throwing the Shadow Flame back into the lava. This is the only way to save Abyssian. If you try to cauterize the wound, if you try to heal the wound, 
the Shadow Flame remains in there. It, it's not going to go away. And eventually, Abyssian will fall to the corruption of the Shadow Flame. Interesting. Very interesting, right there. Okay, so they managed to save Sibelian from this. Abyssian pulls the Shadow Flame out of him, and we cast the Shadow Flame back into the lava. But now we're getting to the fight against Farak. And Sibelian got managed to get his hands on a spear from the Jaradin. And this specific spear is a dragon-killing spear. It's designed specifically, and they tell us a bit later on, the spear have these hooks on it. When it goes in through the scales, it hooks into the flesh. And I imagine the Jaradin would use these with ropes attached to it, shoot it into dragons, and then rip it out. So this spear just rips massive clunks of flesh and scales out of it. Now remember, the Jaradin are basically, like they're like dragon hunters extraordinaire. Right? That's what they do. They hunt dragons. And their main purpose, seemingly, is to make sure that there are no dragons left. That's it. That's what they want to do. They want to make sure that all dragons die. In fact, there's a tale that the Jaradin tell us where they say they have teamed up with the Primalists or the Primal Incarnists right now because they despise the Aspects. But once the Aspects are dead, they'll kill all the Primal Incarnates. <laughs> so that's basically it, right? They're not allies of the Primal Incarnates. It's more just like uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend until we kill the enemy, uh, and, and then I'll kill my enemy. So I, I don't give a shit. I'm killing everything. This is what the Jaradin basically have been born to do. We don't know why. This has not been revealed to us in the lore yet, although I, I do have a couple of theories as to why. But anyways, uh, Sibelian throws this spear at Farak. Funnily enough, this spear does absolutely nothing to Farak. In fact, Farak laughs. And he says, you fool, you really thought that this spear would be able to pierce my scales? Again, just what the hell? Like, how powerful are these primal incarnates that not even a spear designed by a tribe of people whose only objective it is to kill dragons can pierce the scales of these dragons that they want to kill with them? So Farak, clearly very, very powerful. At this point, Farak finds himself in a caldera of sorts, and the Shadow Flame is just being infused into him, which brings up another interesting point. It's not hurting him. Sibelian is on the brink of madness. He's dying as the Shadow Flame is creeping into him. Farak, on the other hand, just getting powerful and powerful and more powerful the shadow flame does not hurt him it, it does nothing to him it's not explained why but for some reason yeah it, it doesn't hurt him and we see this time and time again the proto drakes have this incredible ability to absorb magic around them and this is not an ability that the aspects seem to share in any way shape or form but anyways finally so uh, Farak unleashes his fury on the caverns, and more specifically on the Niffin. Some of the Niffin die in Farak's attack, and we get this throughout the whole cutscene. We really do get this camaraderie 
between Sibelian and Abyssian. And also a little bit of insight. Uh, remember a while ago, this is probably like a good six months ago, I had a theory that Deathwing took his eggs through the Dark Portal to Outland in order to safeguard at least some of his flight from the, the Old God Corruption. We're never actually told why Nalfarian took those eggs through. We know that at the time, he was already under the corruption of the Old Gods. So many people argued, well, he took the eggs because he wanted them to conquer the Outlands. But now, especially with the cinematic, Abyssian thanks Sibelian for keeping their people safe in Outland. And him and Sibelian have this conversation about why, uh, like, what it was like to safeguard the, the Black Dragons in Outland. And I imagine, and this is actually very sad when you really start to think about it, this was one of, perhaps, the final acts of Nalfarian before he finally became Deathwing. This was like in, in those final moments of clarity that the old gods had not burrowed so deep into his mind yet that he could still think like a black dragon where he thought, let's just, let me just save some of my flight. Just some of them, at least. Now, of course, they would already have been a little bit, shall we say, corrupted at that point. But due to the fact that they were so far removed from old god influence, they were able to overcome the corruption. And again, Sibelian does tell us this. They did overcome the corruption and they eventually established themselves as pure black dragons uh, in in the outland. And then, of course, they, they were finally able to come back. But Sibelian, now let's get to the actual conversations here. Uh, Sibelian, Abyssian, something amazing is happening between them. And this is where I really want to start talking about what makes Dragonflight so amazing? Because this is really part of it. In previous World of Warcraft expansions, we've always had very big moments, right? We've always had moments, Sylvanas, you know, defeating um, the Lich King. Or the, uh, the Forsaken using the Scourge or the Blight to kill both the humans and the orcs at the Wrathgate. There's always been these huge moments in World of Warcraft that makes everyone go, wow, man, that's cool. But what World of Warcraft have always lacked have been consistent small moments, moments of bonding that you, you would oftentimes not see the bonding happen. You would sort of be told that, oh, they're best friends or... Oh, they're in love, but you'd never see the actual pathway, right? The actual journey uh, as it happens. Whereas in this one and also Abyssian and uh, uh, what's her name again? Oh my God. Uh, Abyssian and the Drakthir, the one that lost her entire crash. Um, Embethal. Uh, Abyssian and Embethal in their cinematic in 1007, we see the exact same thing just this bonding experience that happens that allows the audience to really become part of that relationship in a way. So it's it's really phenomenal how Abyssian and Tabellian play off of each other as almost brothers. 
you know, uh, these this big brother, little brother dynamic that they have going on. But what's really interesting, and this is going to... I put up a poll a few days ago on Twitter where I asked people who's going to be the next Black Dragon aspect. And most people said Rathian. But I'm... Dude, I'm telling you now, based on all of the stories that we've seen so far, Abyssian seems to be the one that is taking charge for the most part, and the others tend to listen. When Abyssian speaks, Sibelian listens. When Abyssian speaks, Rathian listens. They do not question him. Not once. They'll push back, right? And they'll they'll sort of... Uh, they'll... They'll be black dragons. They're very arrogant as as a as a rule. But at the end of the day, when he speaks, they listen. No questions asked. I really do think Blizzard is setting up Abyssian to become the black dragon aspect. And I, I think for good reason. Because Abyssian is the oldest. He is the wisest, as someone said in chat right now. But also... Abyssian is the only one that doesn't covet the power. He's the only one that, that isn't hungry for it. Both Rathian and Sibelian. I don't think they would start a civil war for it. But I'm not sure that either one of them would bend the knee to the other one. And you, you have to think about this. Because whoever becomes the next Black Dragon Aspect the other black dragons will have to bend the knee to that aspect. Now, can you see in any world Sibelian bending the knee to Rathian or Rathian bending the knee to Sibelian? Both of these have exclaimed themselves to be the black dragon aspect. So if either one gets chosen, the other one leaves with their followers. And it is as simple as that. Abyssian, on the other hand appears to have the loyalty and respect of both. So I really do think that he is being sort of slowly but surely built into the next Black Dragon aspect, and he's also the only one that doesn't make, the, doesn't destroy the Black Dragons as, a, you know, just as a side effect of being chosen as the Black Dragon aspect. So that sort of crashes the, crushes the dreams of anyone that's been looking forward to Rathian or Sibelian becoming the Black Dragon aspect. I do not think that that's going to happen. But that's just my theory. You don't have to agree with it. Back to the Shadow Flame. I want to highlight a specific element of the Shadow Flame. Why does it not hurt Farak? This incredibly powerful magic. This magic, that it touched Sibelian's arm. And he was in such agony that he could do nothing else. Like nothing. He could not partake in the fight. It was literally bringing him to his knees. Why? What is going on with the Shadow Flame that Farak is completely immune and yet Sibelian isn't? More importantly, Sibelian hears the whispers of the Shadow Flame almost instantaneously. Like, as soon as the wound happens, he can start feeling the Shadow Flame creeping towards his soul, and he, he can hear it whispered to him. 
Farak only starts hearing the whispers of the Shadow Flame after he's been infused by almost all of it. So it takes Farak so long to get to the point where the Shadow Flame finally starts whispering to him. It does start whispering to him, but not immediately, which is, again, one of those weird moments in World of Warcraft that makes you wonder what exactly happened with the creation of the Aspects. Why is it that the Protodrakes seem to be so much more immune to corruption than the Aspects? And for this, I really want to bring it back to the introduction of Order. Now, before we even get into it, allow me to just be very clear. I do not think that the Old Gods are good. I don't think that the Old Gods are our friends. In fact, I don't think that there is such a thing as quote-unquote good in World of Warcraft. I, I, I don't believe that. I think in World of Warcraft, almost every single one of the cosmological forces have their own thing that they're pushing for, and everyone else is sort of just collateral damage within this pathway, within this goal that they may have for themselves. The Titans ordered the Aspects. They took them from being Protodrakes and turned them into Aspects. But this removed the ability of the Aspects to consume magic. Any magic. Something we see the Protodrakes do with hardly any issue. The Aspects cannot do this. Why? What is going on? Now, Again, I just want to say this before we go any further. Uh, I am aware that the internet is very bad. I'm aware that the stream is very bad. I'm well aware of that. Uh, I am busy collecting diagnostic data for my service provider because, yeah, it just seems like YouTube streams are not great at the minute. Twitch, we have not minimal problems. But I don't want to do this on Twitch. I want to do the show show on YouTube. This is an opportunity for me to hang out with you guys, especially those of you that don't come over to Twitch. So, you know, I, I, I'm aware. I am trying to fix it. That's why I'm collecting the data. But for now, when the stream drops, just wait a second. It'll come back on. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, it, it is up and down. And there's literally nothing that I can do about it. So just hold the line and uh, I'll be back. Where was I? What were we talking about before I interrupted myself? I can't remember now. Hmm. I, I, I'm just blank now. Uh, we were talking about the Shadow Flame, and we were talking specifically about, oh yeah, the the creation of the of the aspects. Now, remember, cast your mind back to the cinematic where Razageth is speaking to Rathian. Rathian says to Razageth that he wants to be what his father was not. He wants to be the dragon that his father could never be. And Razageth gets angry 
Like, Razageth gets peeved to fuck at that comment. Because as far as Razageth is concerned, Deathwing was never a dragon. Not even as Nalfarian, not even the great Nalfarian was a good dragon. May it have something to do with this introduction of order that the protodrakes see the aspect as almost an abomination of what dragonkind is meant to be. That the aspects were made weaker for accepting the gifts of the titans. And that the protodrakes view themselves as the, the true aspects of dragonkind because they did not accept the order with, uh, into themselves. And this then, of course, gives us good insights into why the aspects are so limited in their ability to absorb foreign types of magic, but also so vulnerable to any type of magic. Allow me to explain. The Titans. Have you guys ever wondered why it was possible for Sargeras to defeat all of the Titans single-handedly in combat? The answer is foul. The Titans are weakened against foul. No explanation why, but it is their great weakness. It is their kryptonite. If you hit a titan with foul magic, you inflict triple the damage. It, there's no explanation for it, but it's its opposite. So it makes sense. You see, its order, its own order, means that its opposite becomes its greatest weakness. Could that be why the aspects are, are sort of weakened in their ability to accept things like Shadow Flame? Even though that doesn't quite make sense, because Shadow Flame wouldn't really be the opposite. It's not foul. I don't know. I, I don't have an answer to this, by the way, because we don't have an answer to this. We still don't know exactly how the aspects were created. We we sort of started on that path with the tier questline. Uh, the Vaults of Tear. You guys remember that, right? We had one one vault that was for Protodrakes and another vault for the Aspects. So clearly, Tear doing research or experiments on these. By the way, going to throw out a theory here for all of you that might be interested in it. Um, I currently think, and this is just my theory, but I think the reason the primary Connets are so angry and why the primal incarnates hate the aspect so much. And this would be not even known to the aspects themselves. They would have no idea. I believe that the primal incarnates were the first. I think Tyr first took the four primal incarnates, five if we include Galakrond, and he experimented on them, infusing them with different types of magic. The idea being that they will be the leaders of Drakenkind. Because we know that the Titan Keepers like ordering things, right? They, they like making things sort of go in a specific way. So having these leaders for Dra for the Protodrakes would mean that the Protodrakes would have an ordered line of evolution. Problems started to occur. 
the proto-drakes were infinitely difficult to control. For some reason, they would just not follow the orders of Tyr. And so Tyr created the aspects. Only this time, he made sure to increase or include a healthy amount of order into their creation to make them sufficiently malleable and sufficiently obedient to the, the, the sort of orders given by the Titan Keepers. And he then used the aspect against their own brothers and sisters in the primal incarnates to lock them up. I believe this is what fuels that hatred between uh, between the aspects and the dragon incarnates. But again, just a speculation theory. I don't have any evidence for that per se. But I also think that this process, whatever process was used in the creation of the aspects, it's what made them weak against forms of or different forms of magic now i want to talk specifically about just how much pain does because remember we're now in a process of trying to discover what is shadow flame so this is why we're going through all the little reveals in those cutscenes. the shadow flame causes sibelian an immense amount of pain they absolutely mean it renders him unable to do anything else the pain should be exquisite though because black dragons naturally speaking black dragons have a very high tolerance to pain for those of you that don't know black dragons experience pain every single moment of their existence that was part of the gift that they were given and just very quickly want to take some time to say iron watcher thanks so much for becoming a member man really appreciate you thank you thank you thank you let's talk about the gifts of the aspects before we continue you're all aware that every single one of the aspects received a gift from a titan one of the titans Alexstrasza, for example, received the gift of life. The ability to breathe life into almost anything. But what is the downside of that? Because every single one of those gifts came with a vice. A, a weakness of sorts. Sadly, that apparently is the gifts of the Titans. They, in the fine print, the, it... it claps your cheeks right so it gives you big dick energy but also claps your cheeks in the fine print so you kind of have to be very careful when you accept the gifts of the titans because you know you never know what may in fact be lurking below the surface there alex Straza feels the life force of every being on azeroth more importantly she feels the death of every being on azeroth as if it is happening to her herself it is in dawn of the aspects that there is a short moment where alexstrasza stands behind a bunch of trees and she's looking at small human children playing and it is in that moment that she explains just the incredible depths of despair that she experiences upon death when someone dies so when deathwing killed 
many many people when Arthas killed many many people Alexstrasza and the Red Dragonflight felt every single one of those deaths as if it was happening to them specifically so that's their curse the black dragon aspects and the black dragon flight their gift is the power of azeroth they can literally azeroth responds to them as a natural thing they can wield azeroth as a weapon but they feel the weight of every pebble every stone every mountain every drop of water everything push upon them every single moment of their existence in fact Nalfarian explains it as it feels like it's tearing him apart that pain of being the black dragon aspect it feels like that power is tearing him apart so they should have an incredible tolerance for pain and yet the shadow flames pain infliction is so high that it leave it renders sebelian incapable of doing anything they can't do anything with it big question time and this is for all of you in chat what is shadow flame take a guess any of you what what do you think is shadow flame clearly that is linked to their link to azeroth it's possible all right remember i told you guys because there's a, there's a couple of really good guesses in chat but remember i told you to put a pin in the line where sebelian says this is what drove my father to madness because that, that's a that's a retcon right there we were never told about that we were never told that it was shadow flame that led deathwing or nalfarian to become deathwing so that right there is a, is a retcon or is it because i don't think it actually is now hear me out this is pure five head speculation no evidence for it because the evidence does not exist because the patches have not come out yet but shadow flame comprises of two parts shadow and flame what do flames do specifically what is the job of flame what do we use fire for to cleanse that's the point of fire it is to claims shadow on the other hand big no-no in world of warcraft very corrupting very bad for us we don't really want to fuck with shadow unless you're illyria and you sort of go well i know i'm gonna get shot on eventually with the shadow but for now i'll use its power to my advantage when you put those two together you have a fairly interesting compound because the one is a cleansing fire it's supposed to cleanse and the other is a corrupting fire 
it's supposed to corrupt. Technically speaking, those two are not supposed to be together. You would use the fire to cleanse the corruption of the shadow. Perhaps that's exactly what Nalfarian was doing. We know, thanks to an interview with uh, with the developers, that in Aberus, Deathwing developed Shadowflame. This is at least according to the developer interview. Now, maybe that's been retconned, or maybe they decided against that bit of the lore, but in the interview with, uh, I believe it was with Preach, although I could be wrong, uh, it may actually have been with Tauli. I can't remember exactly. But in one of those interviews, we were told that Deathwing created Shadowflame within Aberus. So the Shadowflame that we all use every single day as Warlocks specifically, it was designed and developed within Aberus. Sibelian thinks, thinks that it is the Shadowflame that drove his father mad. But let's go through the timeline as I understand it. Nalfarian and the Black Dragonflight are the protectors of Azeroth. But also, they are the guardians of Dragonkind. This is why we see Nalfarian involved in fighting Razageth. We do not see Alexstrasza or Nostormu fighting the Primal Incarnates. We see specifically Nalfarian fighting them. Because Nalfarian was the protector of the flights. And this is a role that really came from him being a proto-drake already. If you go back and you read Dawn of the Aspects, even as a proto-drake, he always had this sort of protecting or protection thing for weaker uh, proto-drakes. So he would often intervene. Uh, when Maligos was attacked, when they were still proto-drakes, Nalfarian intervened in that battle and helped Maligos, even though him and Maligos didn't even know each other at the time. They knew of each other, but they were not friends. Nalfarian still just jumped in and helped. Nalfarian was the first to agree to fight Galakrond, and he sacrificed himself on two different occasions, almost, trying to save the other Protodrake. So Nalfarian truly was the Guardian. So when he became the Black Dragonflight, he became the Guardian of the flight. So he was the one doing the heavy fighting. But the fighting was starting to become overwhelming. And so he did what, very interestingly, all of the bad guys in World of Warcraft, or at least most of them, seem to have this same streak. Nalfarian is considered to be the wisest of all of the dragons. Right? He was incredibly wise. Sargeras was considered to be the wisest of all of the titans. Also incredibly wise. Zuval was considered to be the wisest of all of the eternal ones. So there's sort of like a, a theme that's being created. Because the one thing that all of these have in common is a search for knowledge. Sargeras wasn't just fighting the demons. He was learning. He was interrogating. This is why he learned from the Nathrezim what the old gods were busy doing on a planet. Because it wasn't enough for him to just kill the Nathrezim. He wanted to know what is going on. They had this, this unique spirit of discovery for some reason. Right? No idea why. But all of them seem to have this. 
Zuval through probably exactly the same thing or the same course of action discovers some kind of threat so large that it threatens to consume the whole of uh, uh, creation, so to speak, or at least of the Shadowlands. Of course, the only things Val ever tells us about this is you will not be ready for what is to come. Boo-hoo. Right, that's sort of the end of it. But anyways, uh, in the same thing. He has this laboratory aberus and he is constantly tinkering and, and searching for information. This leads him to create the Drakthir. Now, I, we need to pivot to the Drakthir very quickly. It will make sense, but we need to pivot. Something happened in the creation of the Drakthir that was not meant to happen. Something rather large. Okay, now hear me out. All we have of this is the servants of Maligos that speak about why the Drakthir had to be put in stasis. They don't tell us what Nalfarian did, but they do say that if only Nalfarian spoke to Maligos before he created the Drakthir, this would not have happened. But they're sure that if anyone can solve the problem of the Drakthir, it is Maligos. We don't know what was going on there. We, we don't know exactly what was wrong with the Drakthir, but something was wrong. <laughs> that, that's basically all Blizzard gives us, is, is a, a, a few lines between Servants of Maligos, uh, and that's it. So, sadly, use your imagination there. We're not yet sure what exactly happened there, but it is a thing. But we know that Nalfarian used the Drakthir as his personal army against Razageth, and they were incredibly successful at it until he lost the Titan artifact that mind-controlled them. It was that Titan artifact. Once that was destroyed, the Drakthir was placed into stasis, almost as if the Drakthir cannot be trusted outside of being mind-controlled. And this was also the moment that we saw Deathwing on Alfarian for the first time, at least we think, invoke the power of the Old Gods. Perhaps also learning about the Old Gods through experimentation. Trying to make the Drakthir stronger. I have a theory. I'm not saying it's correct, but it might be correct. I think Old God Essence was used in the creation of the Drakthir. Not so much that they would ever be corrupted without, you know, accepting it themselves, because we know that Sarkareth uh, in the uh, in the raid accepts Void into himself. He believes that's the legacy that Deathwing left for them. Uh, but just enough to give them um, an edge, enough to make them powerful, because they could use this shadow, this, this, this magic to amplify the essence of the flights. So he was using shadow magic as an amplifier. The problem is that that shadow magic gives them a fierce sense of individuality and the almost refusal to go along with anything other than what they deem to be the right thing. Again, this is sort of, I derive this from the quest line in 1007, where Embethal just, even though Abyssian is far older, far wiser and far stronger than her 
She does not give a shit. Like, she just does not care. She's like, screw this. Digimark, by the way, bro. Thank you so much. Ten months. Part of the Degeneration. Appreciate you, fam. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That might be why he decided to place them in stasis. That introduction of Shadow was just too much. But I think this is what what Deathwing was sort of experimenting on in Abaris. He was trying to figure out whether or not different magic sources could be used to defeat the primal incarnates once and for all and keep the dragon aspect safe. But as we know, Void is... Even for someone that is completely clued in, it is very dangerous. Right? You don't want to screw around with the Void. Illyria had to go through an intense amount of training and preparation before she could truly accept the void into her and even now the void threatens to sort of overtake her so it, it is a dangerous game at the best of times josh by the way dude thank you so much for joining the dj nation appreciate you bro thank you thank you thank you for Nalfarian, he would have had none of that training, none of that preparation. He, Void is when I love a drug. God of War, how you doing, bro? How's everyone doing, by the way? I hope you guys are well. Sorry that I'm not responding to your chats, but I'm I'm sort of trying to keep track of, of the conversation. So if I start responding to chats, we'll just get completely veered off into, you know, into completely different things. Because I know how this goes. This is what happens on Twitch. I start off with, hey guys, today we're going to talk about dragons. Before I know it, we're talking about penises. And I don't know how exactly we got to the penises, but we're there now. So I'm not getting into this. I just want to finish the story and then we can chat, right? I I, I, I do want to chat to you guys, but I also want to keep track of what I'm saying. Uh, anyways, um, Deathwing wouldn't have had any preparation for, well, basically anything. He would have gone into this blind. And I think this is where the Void slowly and surely started to corrupt him. This is where the Void slowly but surely started to whisper to him. I think he then has that moment where he invokes the power of the Void to cast Razageth into her prison. And now the Void has its hold on him. Now Farian is slowly but surely starting to lose his grip on reality. The whispers are starting to get more powerful. It's starting to get greater. And Alfarian decides he needs to purge this. He needs to get rid of this. And that now starts the experimentation with Shadow Flame. Can flame be used to cleanse the corruption? So it's not a retcon. The Shadow Flame is not the thing that drove him drove him mad. It was his attempt at trying to cleanse the madness from himself. Ultimately, we know how the void works. Remember, the whispers are constant. It's constantly telling him. So it's now involving itself in the very thing that Nalfarian is trying to create to cleanse himself of the corruption. The corruption is telling him, oh, a little bit more fire, a little bit more shadow. Just right. Now drink it. It'll be good for you. Right? That's like going to the flu and asking the flu to help you come up with a drug to cure the flu. 
<laughs> not gonna go well for you because the flu is not just gonna give you the ability to cure yourself, right? That's the problem with Nalfarian's story. God of War, bro, seven months part of the degeneration. Appreciate you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I think this is where ultimately Nalfarian's true descent into madness happened. Is once he thought to himself, I can use the Shadow Flame to stop my own corruption, but also make myself beyond powerful, because we know just how powerful Shadow Flame actually can be. That's my theory, at least, for why I think. The Shadow Flame came to become a thing, but also why it is so incredibly powerful. Because Shadow Flame is one of the most unnatural magics we have ever seen in World of Warcraft. It's not meant to exist. And, and usually in fantasy tropes, unnatural things tend to be far more powerful, but also... We have evidence in World of Warcraft that magic mixed is far more powerful than pure magic. Light and void mixes to become foul. Foul is incredibly powerful. Also, corrupting. But this brings me to my final quality of Shadow Flame that I wanted to talk about today. Why is it the only source of magic that corrupts? When a priest hits you with a void bolt, you don't suddenly start hearing the voices of the old gods. Not canonically, nor gameplay-wise. It's just magic. It does damage, does what it needs to do. When you're hit by flame, you don't start, st suddenly start hearing the ancient voice of Ragnaros. Even when you're hit by foul, foul is incredibly corruptive. And yet, if I hit you with a foul bolt, you're not suddenly starting to invoke demon, uh, demonic possession. But Shadow Flame is different. It hits a Belian, and it will not go. It just will not leave. Why? What is this magic that it not only hurts, it not only sears, but it lingers, it grows, and eventually it corrupts. And this, of course, brings us into a whole new slew of conversation. Because we have to start asking ourselves. What exactly does Farak become? Because Varak used to be the primal incarnate of fire. Varak is no longer the primal incarnate of fire. Varak, in Tain 1, becomes the primal incarnate of Shadow Flame. He genuinely he's lying in the caldera surrounded by Shadow Flame, and he is absorbing all of the Shadow Flame into himself. There is a chance, I'm not saying that it is going to happen. Remember, Eridocron was considered to be the most powerful of all of the Primal Incarnates. But wouldn't the Shadow Flame make Farak even more powerful now than even Eridocron? 
<clears throat> and that scares me. And I think it should scare all of us. Well, actually, we shouldn't be scared. As, as mortals that live in the real world, we should be incredibly excited. Because the future of this story, uh, Eredokran or Thorak truly can become one of those mainstay villains. You know, one of those guys that pushes many, many expansions forward. Unless, of course, Blizzard decides we kill him this expansion, which I really hope doesn't happen. So my theory at the minute, do you guys want to hear my big brain theory for how this expansion plays out? Point for point, I'll tell you how this expansion ain't. After 10-1, where we take care of uh, Sarkareth, and I'm not yet sure if we fully kill Sarkareth or if he actually escapes, but after 10-1, we now start really aiming our attention towards the Pro primal incarnates. They need to be taken down. Farak becomes our immediate threat. Now, again, want to be clear here, I'm not entirely sure... If Farak is killed by us, I kind of hope he isn't. But if if we are going to kill the Primal Incarnate in this expansion, I do believe that it is going to be Farak. Farak is just one of those gung-ho maniacs that, you know, lovely character, but probably, probably, you know, he, he's kind of like the guy that has to die in the movie just because he is so fucking nuts. You couldn't live in a world where he has time to do his own thing. So Varak is probably going to be the one. We're not going to kill Eredokron and we're not going to kill Varanoth. And here's why. Um, Eredokron struck a number of bargains that not even the Primal Incarnates knew about. Varanoth seems to be the most level-headed of all of the Primal Incarnates. She is not so much hell-bent on the destruction of the aspects purely for destruction's sake. She seems to be genuinely peeved at something that occurred between the Primal Incarnates and the Aspects. But now, Viranoth learns about the bargains Eredokron actually struck. Now, this is where people usually go, and everyone goes, yeah, he made a bargain with the Light. It has to be the Light. But what if it's not the Light? What if Eredokron struck a bargain with Galakrond himself? What if Eredokron struck a bargain to bring Galakron back? Remember, we don't know where dragons go upon their death. We don't know if that would be possible, but it could be. We also don't quite know if all of Galakron was actually killed. The Titans have a weird habit of keeping things. Yisaraj, we'll kill this guy. He's really big, but no, no. Keep his heart. You never know when we might need it for a barbecue or something. So yeah, well, fuck. Yeah, let's keep a massive heart of one of the largest old gods just lying around, shall we? That doesn't seem dangerous at all. So, you know, it, it, yeah, the Titans seem to keep things. There is a possibility that Galakron's heart is still somewhere on Azeroth. Heart seems to be a huge thing. Remember, beginning of the expansion, where do we start the storyline for the Dragonflight expansion? In front of the heart of Deathwing. Hearts really seem to be a huge thing. 
Farinoth now learns about this corruption of Galakrond and the corruption of Eridicron and the deals that Eridicron had made with Galakrond. Varanoth is appalled. She can't believe, because it is my thinking at this point that Varanoth, Eridicron, and Farak, they would have been alive during the era of Galakrond. Remember, not all of the protodrakes were killed. Some of them did survive the battle against Galakrond. And it might be that Varanoth becomes an ally. I don't know why I think Varanoth will become an ally, but based on the cinematics we've seen from Varanoth so far, she appears to be the least hateful. I don't know why. I just get the sense that she's going to become an ally. She's going to turn against Eridicron once she learns just how far Eridicron has fallen. Varanoth allies with us. At the end of this expansion, we fight Farak. Eridicron rolls over to the next expansion, and the expansion ends with the resurrection of Galakrond. Because I keep asking myself, they need the fire that powers Abaris himself. We know that this is a Jordan Alder that, that literally powers Abaris. Why would you need that much power? Eridicron is the proto-incarnate of, of Earth. He already has Azeroth for power. He can literally draw upon the power of the Earth and that will power him. Viranoth has all that lava and flame around him. That will power him just fine. Ophirak. Viranoth is of ice. She has no reason for any of flame in Abaris. What if that flame needs to be used to re-originate Galakrond. Now, I want this mainly because I want to see what Galakrond looks like in the game. So I'm not changing my speculation for fucking anything. Galakrond needs to be in the game. I need to see what Galakrond actually looks like. Because based on the box, Galakrond was monstrous. If you've never read Dawn of the Aspects, do yourself a favor and do it. Because... Based on the books, Galakrond's wings would literally darken entire zones. When Galakrond flew overhead, an entire zone would be dark, as if in night. But Galakrond was fast. You would expect something that large to be really slow. He was incredibly fast. Like, super fast, and also very intelligent. So I'm really hoping we see... Uh, Galakrond at some point and I do think that that it kind of makes sense it's the one thing that no one would guess everyone sort of immediately guessed light and the reason people guessed light and I I agree with you because that was where my mind went immediately as well as light it has to be light because the void had already struck a bargain with Nalfarian they don't need another dragon they have Nalfarian so it only makes sense that the light would want a bargain too and we know the light likes bargains as well so eridicron could have struck a bargain with the light and and that would be fine but i don't think that would necessarily send Vernoth away from the primal incarnate and i don't know i don't know why but just looking at her face looking at her model and looking at her demeanor she really doesn't she seems like someone that you could reason with and that maybe you will reason with at some point 
just want to say though it also seems like some of her power is locked up in uh in uh what's the tower called again i made a video on this uh for those of you that haven't seen that video yet uh i i think her power was stolen and placed inside um oh fuck, i can't remember what the tower is called now but anyways so i think Viranoth joins us next expansion we now have galakrond back and ready to go we have the drust because their primal incarnate is now alive and kicking the drust being of decay death druids very much decay uh the drust is alive and kicking they're back iridacron is back but there's one more you see in the final battle against farath the aspects are mortally wounded they're lying in their final breaths. It's it's dire. The battle is being lost. Farak, infused with the power of Shadow Flame, is just too strong. And here is Nostormer. He's looking at the end of Dragonkind as he knows it. He's watching the death of his brothers and sisters at the hands of Farak. And he decides to change the timeline. The one timeline. The one that he was clearly told he is not allowed to change. Our timeline. Amanthul told him very, very straightforward. You are not allowed to change this one. But he has to change this one. Because this is the one where things are going wrong. He decides to take them back in time to before the battle so that they could refight the battle now knowing what they know. This is the moment that he becomes Morazond. Because this is the moment that he was warned about. Remember, he was told that he will not accept his own death and that that will be the birth of Morazond. Now, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I've been going through this a lot. Nostormu hates Morazond. He despises the fact that he will become Morazond. So there is no universe in which Nostormu stares death in the face and refuses to accept it, because he knows that if he doesn't accept it, he becomes Morazond. He doesn't die he becomes Morazond. He doesn't live. He becomes Morazond. It is a lose-lose situation for Nostormu. He will not do it. He will die because he knows that whether he lives or dies, he, Nostormu, dies this day. There's nothing he can do about it. But if that, if it's his brothers and sisters dying, then suddenly the choice is no longer that straightforward. It's not as easy to go, well, I will accept my death. Because you're not just accepting your death. You are now accepting the death of you, your brothers, your sisters, and everything else. At least everything you hold dear. Would that be enough to force him to become Morazan? Even if he thinks he may be able to withstand that level of corruption. Now, I don't exactly know why changing the true timeline 
turns him into Morazond. This I don't understand. The only thing I can think of, like try to make sense of it, is the reason you can't fuck with the true timeline is two, no two of you can exist in the same timeline of the same timeline. So if you were to wind back time to a previous point where you are at, so you are at that time and now you're going back to that time, the two of you together causes a corruption within the timeline. And it is what creates Morazon. Because two of you may never exist in the same space from the same timeline. So Nosdormu from our timeline can go to another timeline and meet another Nosdormu. This is fine. They're not from the same timeline. But Nosdormu from timeline A can never meet Nosdormu from timeline A. Because this is that sort of just that clashing of the two that creates the infinite. And when you think about it, that kind of makes sense. The infinite, as many as you want. If Nosdormu kept going back in time on the same timeline, he could effectively create an infinite number of Nosdormus. Ergo, the infinite dragonflight. Because it corrupts the timeline. The, the true timeline becomes a corrupted sense within itself. And this is how we get Morazond, and Morazond becomes the big bad for the next two expansions after that. That is what I think happens at the end of this expansion. I'm not saying it will, just saying it could. <laughs> I think, I think that it kind of makes sense to me in my head that that is how it may play out. Um, and we already know that this is how Blizzard wants to do it because Steve Denuser said in an interview uh, with Preach, I believe, that they're starting to look at expansions no longer as sort of like a, a one-shot. They're starting to look at expansions as a, a, a sort of chapters in a book. So you don't have to deal with all threats in a single chapter. You can have threats roll over to, to the next chapter and the chapter after that. So you can really string chapters, uh, you know, together if you really want to. Um, this would make sense to me. Abaddon, yeah, pretty much. I, I, I'm pretty much. Morazond would, uh, what is the one that make a deal with the light to bring the army of corrupted light back to Azeroth? Um, I don't know if Murazon would necessarily do that because Murazon's story is also very difficult to follow. The problem with Murazon's story is that Murazon wants to stop the Void Lords from winning. So he's trying to stave off the Hour of Twilight. This is what the Infinite Dragonflight basically wants to do. However, the old gods use Morazon to bring about the Hour of Twilight. So it's sort of like, uh, he doesn't want to serve them, but he does serve them in the end. 
Uh, and uh, so Morazan's story is also very convoluted, but that's usually what happens with time travel. It becomes very difficult. Um, could we see Deathwing return? Maybe. Um, his heart is there. It is entirely possible. I just don't know if Blizzard will bring Deathwing back. Uh, I mean, it, it, it'll be very much out of left field. And also, I feel like Deathwing served his purpose really well. For what Deathwing was meant to be, I feel like Deathwing was fine. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it just feels like Deathwing was fine. Was a bronze aspect when uh, there is no bronze aspect. So Josh, based on my reading of the lore, when Mor when Nosdormu becomes Morazond, he pulls all of the bronze dragonflight into infinity. So all of the bronze dragonflight instantly stops existing, and they become the the infinite. It is it is irreversible. There is nothing that he or any of the others can do about it. Their link to Nostormu as their father, basically, it's the same thing that happened to to Nalfarian. Nalfarian's corruption to the void corrupted all of the black dragons. It was just, it was instant. The second Nalfarian fell to the void. All of the black dragons became corrupted in in that because they're connected, they're interconnected, their line is is, is it's solid. So what happened to the aspect happens to the flights. There, there, it doesn't seem like there's really a change in that. It if you think about all of the black dragons that we have that isn't corrupted today, you have Abyssian, you have Rathian, and you have Sibelian. Sibelian was removed to Outland, far away from the corruption of the old gods. That's the only way that he was ma he was able to rid himself of their corrupting influence. Abyssian was cleansed. The egg was cleansed. We did that during was it Legion? I think during yeah in High Mountain, we we watched the cleansing of the eggs, and Abyssian was the only one that managed to survive. So it was with the interference from an outside force that basically freed Abyssian from that corruption. And Rathian, the same thing. Rathian was actually cleansed by the, the Red Dragonflight. Uh, at least, that's the claim, right? The the Red Dragonflight cleansed the eggs and Rathian was born. So, if it wasn't for outside interference, none of them would have been able to claim that they were free of corruption. They would have all been corrupted the same way that Deathwing had been. So, it just seems like the second Nostormu becomes Morazond, it's over. Chromie and all of them become infinite dragons in that moment, that, that instant moment. It's over, right? Uh, Ravy G, how you doing, bro? 44 months, part of the DJ Nation. Appreciate you, bro. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And yeah, the show show is back and hopefully better than ever. <laughs> Although that is a sharp claim. The show show was always really good, I think. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it, it is its own thing. Uh, do you remember the undead black dragon in BC? He flew around the Netherwing ledge. I think so, but that's years ago. I'd have to go check it again. 
I mean, that's a long time ago. I'd have to go back and check. But it sounds familiar to me. So for our final topic, I want to talk about Dragonflight. Can I get a quick sort of overview from chat? Everyone in chat right now. How are you guys doing? Really happy to have all of you here. Please remember to hit the like button if you enjoy this stream. Just slap a like. It really does help. You'd be surprised how much likes help on YouTube. So, you know, do your thing and, and, and you know, spank that little button uh, as if it, you know, as if it's your stepsister, if anything. But quickly want to find out from all of you in chat. How many of you play World of Warcraft at the moment? Dominic, of course, this is live, yeah. Okay. There's a lot of people that is playing, but I do see quite a few names here that isn't playing at the minute. Now, I'm not going to... This is not a marketing ploy. I'm not trying to market you into playing World of Warcraft. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think that's my job. And it really depends on why you stop playing. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about, you know, if you stop playing because you no longer enjoyed the raids, I can't talk to that. I can't speak to that because I, I don't know whether the raids are good or not. I, I've enjoyed the raids, but only because of the story, right? Uh, I don't really care uh, other otherwise because I don't do normal heroic or mythic raiding. I just do, you know, the play braid. Um, if, you, if you stop playing because of Mythic Plus... Again, can't really speak to that because it's never been my 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 field of expertise. I'm a lore guy. This is what I like doing. I like the lore. So I'll talk about that. If you stop playing World of Warcraft because of the lore, there has never been a better, better time to come back to World of Warcraft than right now. World of Warcraft's lore, I think, currently, is as good as it will ever be. And you have to understand this. It is not the best lore in the MMO space, but it can never be because it's not really how World of Warcraft works. I, I see a lot of people comparing World of Warcraft to Final Fantasy, and I made the same mistake. I did it too. When I played Final Fantasy, I, I would compare world of warcraft to final fantasy but i was always very careful in my comparisons to final fantasy not to compare it one-on-one -on -one. because i do think there are things or were things that final fantasy did phenomenally well that world of warcraft could have learned from and in saying that that's exactly what happened in dragonflight the things that i thought final fantasy could really or teach World of Warcraft, World of Warcraft feels like they have taken those lessons and it has been implemented in the best way that World of Warcraft can allow for it, right? Because there are limitations to how World of Warcraft's lore and story work. Dominic, Keisu, by the way, thank you so much. Three months, both of you, part of the DJ Nation. Appreciate both of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. World of Warcraft is a gameplay first game. 
and it has to be that because most people don't play world of warcraft for the lore if you try to turn world of warcraft into final fantasy wow would lose thousands upon thousands upon thousands of players because there are just so many players in wow that don't want to play final fantasy they don't want to sit through 45 minutes of cutscenes where people are just talking to each other right people don't want to do that that i i want my quest i want to go kill 10 things and then i want to do the next quest kill that get to max level start raiding start pvp that's what i want to do in world of warcraft that's what makes wow wow it's unique to world of warcraft there's very few mmos that manage to do what world of warcraft has done and you have to you have to be happy with that because they're not trying to be final fantasy nor should they try to be final fantasy but what i wanted final fantasy to teach world of warcraft was micro story i feel like world of warcraft has always been very good at macro story and i realized that these terms might not make a lot of sense so allow me to explain what is macro story well imagine we have imagine we're writing a book and in the book, we have a party of heroes, and they're walking. They're going to Mount Doom, right? Imagine we're writing Lord of the Rings. Macro story, our heroes are walking through a field. What does this field look like? That's macro story. You know, maybe this field is a forest. Maybe it's a swamp. Maybe there's a castle off in the distance. That's macro story. I'm 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 painting the world for you, so to speak. I'm I'm giving you a reason to care. World of Warcraft has always been phenomenal with this. It does macro story on on a level that it, it doesn't have to be better at it. They know how to do it. But what exactly is micro story? Well, the castle over in the distance. Whose castle is it? Who owned that castle? Perhaps there's a haunting in that castle. Perhaps there's a ghost in that castle. Perhaps that ghost has a story. Perhaps that ghost has another ghost that used to be its lover. These are micro stories. These are the stories that give the world life. Now, I'm not saying that World of Warcraft had none of that. Of course it did. But oftentimes, those were the things that could be very lacking in World of Warcraft. Those elements that, that would be almost brushed over at times. Not always. Sometimes they really did it well. But other times, it would just be like, ah, oh, never mind. You know, we, we don't care that much. That is gone. Dragonflight does micro story almost better than anything I've seen before. There are so many small moments in Dragonflight that is used to absolute perfection to tell a story that would previously have been in a book. It's it's phenomenal. You have the the dwarf dragon, right? I can't remember his name. I can never remember his name. Varus something. But you have this dwarf dragon, right? That tells you a story. And it's literally just a reading quest. That's all it is. It's a micro story within the greater world, but it informs of a macro story. 
because it's actually telling you the individual experiences of the dragons as Nalfarian fell. It's giving you insights into the fall of Nalfarian, what that did not only to the black dragons, but also to the other dragons. Veristras, that's the one. Yes. And it, it, it molds the world out more. It gives you insights. The Jorodin Seer. Well, the blind guy. The storyteller. Stories. Small stories. But they paint a picture. They give you another reason to care about the Jorodin. It makes the Jorodin a little bit cooler than what they already were. And they don't need much to make them cooler. They're already pretty cool. But it, it just informs a little bit more. And almost all of this is scattered throughout the world where unless you go looking for it, you'll never find it. It's not forced upon you. It's just there. You, you need to go look. You need to go explore. And, and it kind of makes you feel a little bit like Indiana Jones at some point in some points but if there's ever been a moment that i think world of warcraft beckons its player base to come back i think dragonflight is it mainly because of the story but then also has my view on steve denuser changed yes i think i actually publicly apologized to steve denuser a few months back it might be too soon to say forever, but right now, I think what Steve Denuser is doing is on point. I think the story is good. And I, I specifically think it's good because we're not dealing with, you know, cosmic level threats and, you know, fucking end of the galaxy and whatever. We're dealing with a localized story that we know. And th it feels like if you compare what Shadowlands was to what Dragonflight is, Shadowlands was almost a, a, it almost spat on Wrath of the Lich King in a way. You know, it, it, it took the character of Arthas and really boiled him down to a one-dimensional goof almost. It, it, it removed a lot of the depth and the, the impact that something like Wrath had. Compare that to Dragonflight and Dragonflight feels like an, a, a celebration of what Dawn of the Aspects were, right? It feels like a celebration of dragons. It's not spitting on any of the individual lore that we've had in the past. It's celebrating it. It's taking it and, and sort of elevating it to new heights and, and exploring it alongside the player. You know, stories that we've wanted to see explored for such a long time is now finally being explored in greater detail and i think that is phenomenal i think i think that is really good but then also if you are someone that cares little for the lore because maybe you get all your lore from my channel in which case i fucking love you but you know you still should play the uh, the game but then you know at least you're watching the channel so i do appreciate you for that um i challenge you to find a moment in World of Warcraft in their entire existence where Blizzard have been more on point with listening to the community than in Dragonflight. I fucking challenge you. 
news uh, spoiler it, it doesn't exist i have never this is something that even when wow was great back in legion back in uh warlord of Draenor was a good place for me at least uh, i enjoyed warlord but that's because i was a raider i didn't care about anything else uh even let's go back to the glory days of wow wrath of the lich king tbc blizzard have always been very slow at responding to player feedback and when i say very slow i mean sometimes not at all like sometimes players would be complaining for fucking months if not years and nothing would change it, it would always just be this we hear you we hear you we hear you and it's like well stop hearing us and do something about it it, it was always such a pain this is the one thing that i can say with absolute certainty that's always been uh, sort of a, a, a core tenant of Blizzard Entertainment. It takes a while for, for Blizzard to listen to the player base. They, they seem to always sort of know better, and uh, the player base seems to have to fight to get things changed. There's been exceptions here and there. Obviously, there's always going to be, but for the most part, it's always taken a while to get Blizzard to listen. In general. I don't want to say for the most part, because that would also be a lie. Uh, but in general, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that's important to note. Um, I want to see long drawn out fights and cinematics. I think we are going to get those cinematics, but I also like the fact that there are, you know, there's long drawn out fights in cinematics, but then there's also really, you know, cool story moments in cinematics. And, and, and that's really cool to see the, the sort of, contrast of those two in dragonflight however you know players complained very heavily about the affixes very heavily first first season of mythic plus was horrendous players were really unhappy with the affixes blizzard changed it they're busy changing it what's interesting is blizzard's change caused another outrage because the change actually sort of introduced affixes again that people hated and while people were outraged blizzard changed the affixes again people are complaining about classes not playing well and you see blizzard going right how about this let's try this out for the ptr let's try and change this class let's see what we can do to make people as happy as possible it really feels like everyone's voice is finally being heard in world of warcraft and it doesn't mean that they're going to listen to all of us they shouldn't listen to all of us but it does mean that they seem to be at least responsive and also accepting of player feedback and not the whole we hear you but we don't agree because that's always been very frustrating when you know everyone is complaining about something and blizzard just sort of turns a blind eye to it so yeah i really do think that if there's ever been a time for you to sort of be part of World of Warcraft, now is that time. It, it The game feels good. It's super fun. It's the old WoW. And when I say the old WoW, I'm not talking about, you know, Shadowlands BFA. I'm talking the old WoW as in Legion or Cataclysm or even Wrath of the Lich King. It, it, it is just once again that feeling of i want to be an azeroth i enjoy being an azeroth 
I like seeing the stories as they play out. I like seeing, because uh, I do think the pacing is also really well done, this expansion. You're not, you're not getting stories every single week. The stories do sort of unlock based on the speed at which you gain your own renown. Um, and it, it, it may feel like that's time-gating, and in a way, you know, straightforward it is time-gating, but at the same time, it kind of makes sense. They, you have to gain their trust. They're not going to tell you their deepest, darkest secrets without knowing you. So as you gain more trust with them, they start revealing more of their secrets to you. It's much better than the whole every week it unlocks, right? So you have to wait a week for a new story to unlock. The second you hit that renown level, the story is available to you. Go play it. So I, yeah, I think it's really good. But anyways, you make up your own minds uh, as to whether or not you want to try it again. I, I don't want to influence anyone, uh, but I also think that I've been watching a few videos of people still going on about the negative stuff and really hammering the the negative or, or the yeah the negative stuff about World of Warcraft, and I I don't think. I don't think that people are being incredibly honest when they're just being negative about Dragonflight because I don't think it deserves the negativity. And you guys know me. I'm, I'm not really someone that, that's going to pretend to like something if I don't like it. It's going in a good direction right now. Blackwalls, absolutely agree with you. I don't think it was a damn free-for-all sex party all day, every day. What do you mean, Kimmy? Working on Shadowlands and a little previous. No wonder it blew chunks. All oh, right, I think I know what you're what you're saying. Can you please tell us which Titan give you aspect to each dragon? For example, what if Sargeras gave gift to Black Dragonfight? No, so Omar. Um... Now I have to remember the names. Fuck me. But it was carrot. Uh... Jesus, names, bro. Like, fuck me. It was Karastras or some shit. Oh, my fuck. Now I'm going to have to Google their names because I'm definitely forgetting names. But it was Norganon, I think, that gave the gift to the Black Dragon Aspects. Or was it Karastras? Oh, Jesus, fuck me, man. Me and names, dude. I know exactly what they look like. I can see them in my mind's eye. But I can't remember the goddamn names. This is uh, Kaskarath. That's the one. Thank you. Kaskarath. Yes. Kaskarath was the guy that gave the gift to the Black Dragons. Um, Amanthul. I don't think Amanthul was actually involved in... No, Amanthul was with uh, Nosdormu. Yeah, Amanthul was with Nosdormu. A&R was with Ysera and Alexstrasza. Um... Norganon was for Maligos and the Blue Dragonfly. But then you do have sort of discussions about, for example, um, Golgoneth was, uh, could have been involved in some of, uh, like, a portion of his power could have, could have been given to the Black Dragonfly as well. Um, although it's never stated that all of the titan keepers gave their power to each of the dragonflights so not all of them had to have been involved 
but we do know this already, right? This is not, it's not really, you don't need to speculate about that. At least if the Chronicles can be trusted, this is known. This is like known lore. Poor death guy, we killed, so no death titan. Well, it depends if Argus was even meant to be the death titan, right? Blizzard can give you a perfectly cooked steak and people would flip out that it is not the right temp they prefer. Yoshi B will fart on your, in your dinner and the players will praise him for it. Um, I do what I want. To be fair to that, because you might be correct, There, there is such a thing of just absolute bias, right? You're right. Uh, right now, I would I would have used blowjob as an example, but yeah, Ian could be giving you a blowjob and make you come, and players would still complain that they didn't come fast enough, right? Uh, Yoshi P could punch you in the nuts, and players would be like, "Oh my god, I, I I love the pain and the agony," but I also think at the same time it it, it is sort of pref uh, uh, history does play a part in that, right? Um. Yoshi P have, have always sort of had a very rich history of interaction with his community. And there there does seem to be that aura around him of genuinely caring about uh, the gamers in Final Fantasy XIV. Whereas for a while, um, Ian and the team sort of felt like very distant to the player base. They, they, they didn't feel like they really cared about us as players all that much. Uh, and that might actually be the thing that... that cause this sort of fissure to be created between the player base and uh, the developers. But it is changing. It's not going to happen overnight. It is going to be slow. But I do think with enough effort and enough time, it can be changed. And Blizzard can absolutely get back to that, you know, That relationship that they used to have with the player base. Because it wasn't always like that. There was a time where Blizzard could do absolutely no wrong. Most people don't remember that. But there was a time... Like, there was a time where... Mike Morheim, right? It could come out that Mike Morheim has kids for slave labor. And people would be like, well, you know, but really, it's it's World of Warcraft. It needs child labor. So, you know, we forgive him. It's fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> there really was a time where Mike Morheim could do no fucking wrong. And Blizzard could do no wrong. Um, so you can get back to that. But there needs to be that genuine level of, of love shown from both sides. Uh, and I, I do think Blizzard is showing that to the player base now with Dragonflight. And I, I think it's going to get back to... I think we are going to get back to it. Oh, but I'm very true. Too many Zoomers. They don't have time for a long game. They needed to eat too. True. I remember Dave attacked Arthas and hated on him during Stratholme and Asmund's reply saying he did nothing wrong. Which makes sense. They turn Arthas into Degenerate Wisp Soul at end of expansion. Omar, so I remember watching that video about that developer that said shit about Arthas 
And it was just like, nah, fam. Like, you are absolutely out of your fucking mind if you think that's true. Is the whole an aspect power resides and flows through their whole flight just a titan power thing? Or would the same happen with the Primaline Connets? So, Torcanus, it doesn't seem like that is a thing for all Protodrakes. Protodrakes seem to have a very... individualistic view of the world uh and and this is sort of from their history so historically proto drakes really sort of formulated or organized themselves into very small groups they they you know way back in the day before the aspects even existed proto drakes would sometimes you know their crashes or or their clutches would it would consist of no more than four to five protodrakes. And they would fight anything else because it was basically all about survival. It, it was about food sources and they would protect their food source with their lives. Uh, and they were very, very distrusting of anything else. And the, the primal incarnate seems to have kept that. So there's not that sort of brotherhood linear thing. They do have a brotherhood within themselves, but I don't think that brotherhood is as closely knit as the aspects. I do think that the whole aspects one for all all for one kind of thing I, I do think that comes from order it comes from the titans very specifically that would be my guess at least <clears throat> you are aware we talk about the same company that made diablo immortal but hey do you, you do you uh sulfur secret square enix have made a number of highly questionable games as well you know do we judge Final Fantasy XIV the same way we judge Square Enix? No. I can't speak for the whole of Blizzard. Because Blizzard is an evil, evil corporation run by an evil, evil fucking gnome called Bobby Kotick. And I hate Bobby Kotick. But at the same time, I can tell you I, I'm falling more and more in love with the WoW developers the team because remember blizzard is just a corporation it is subdivided into teams and those teams have very little say over what games get made the world of warcraft team ian and, and his people that work under him they weren't consulted about the creation of diablo immortal <laughs> they found out oh diablo immortal is going to be a thing uh i i don't i, I wouldn't judge the whole of Blizzard's development staff for the creation of Diablo Immortal. It is what it is, and there's fuck all you can do about it, right? Uh, I wish Paramount was old video on the Curse of Flesh, being from the Titans A&R, was still up. Uh, so, Waldron, I would absolutely disagree with that anyways. Just on the face of it, I've never seen that video, but I would absolutely disagree with it on the face of it. Uh, the Curse of Flesh... Um, is so obviously not from the Titans. I do have a theory about how the Curse of Flesh came to be. I don't think... How do I put this? So we are told that all mortal races come from the Curse of Flesh, right? And that the Curse of Flesh was bestowed upon uh, Titan Keepers. So the Titans arrived, they made these beings out of clay and stone, and they called them Keepers. And these constructs and their Keepers 
but ultimately do the bidding of the of the titans on azeroth and then the gift of flesh was introduced and this turned them into mortals right what we would have today what if all that is completely bonkers because remember that entire history comes from the titans themselves they were the ones who told us about this i'm starting to think that perhaps the flesh was here first the titans then introduced this order of theirs because remember the titans themselves claim does anything truly exist unless it's been ordered so they may have arrived on azeroth saw these mortals running around with all their free will and shit and said no 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 this will not do let's order these things they're destroying the world they're monkeys we don't we don't want this let's order them let's turn them into stone and we make them part of our army and that's exactly what they did and the old gods simply reintroduced flesh so the gift of flesh it was setting the followers and the the the, the creators so to speak of this it was setting them free and we do have some evidence of this actually happening within the lore um the the uh in in stormheim there are ah oh, what are they called oh, fucking names bro um man humans come from them it's the constructs that got the gift of flesh and this is where humans come from Can they serve Odin? For the love of God, someone give me that name. I'm going to drive myself crazy here. Um, there are Odin's beings. The Vrykul. Thank you. Yes. The Vrykul. Um, there's Vrykul that are flesh in Stormheim that then gets turned into constructs by Odin. Odin makes them into constructs again. In my mind, that is what transpired here so it was sort of like a the titans arrived they ordered everything by turning everyone into constructs and the old gods then set us free by turning us back into flesh uh that's sort of the the uh, i think sort of like the 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 events as it played out that's what i think at least It's an old Ulduar. There's Titan journals about dwarves reverting into flesh under high-stress environments. Um, but this is what I mean with the reverting. The flesh was the origin. We, we started out as flesh. We were then turned into constructs and then reverted back into flesh. Stefan, please, ask, bro. You want to go back to their uh, metal forms? Like what the crazy king of Mekano wanted? Well, yeah, pretty much, right? They they didn't want the gift of flesh. They wanted to go back to metal, as it were. What are the first ones of the order plane who could travel through the veil, started building machines to convert and order other realms? 
Mm, I they build machines to convert the world souls and bring in a titan what if the void is trying to do the same in response so Stefan it depends how we view the first ones right the first ones is a difficult topic we've dealt with the first ones quite heavily um in uh in Q&A's like there's been a lot of questions during the Q&A um about the first ones I genuinely hmm If Blizzard is to be believed, the first ones come, all, all of the cosmological forces come from the first ones. So this would mean that the void works with the first ones, or at least the void serves their purpose within the greater goals of the first ones. But it is entirely pl plausible, uh, even possible, that the void became corrupt at some point and has turned against what the first ones wanted. I can, I can fully see that happening of course uh but uh, i have no idea right it could literally be anything at this point i think we've winged through this book no we didn't no, we did, didn't we? Could have sworn we went through this book. When was this posted? No. Yeah. Pretty sure we did cover this book, but... Fuck it. Let's do it again, I guess. Unaware of Sargeras's mission to undo their countless works, the Titans continued to move from world to world, shaping and ordering each planet as they saw fit. Along their journey, they happened upon a small world that its, uh, that its inhabitants would later name Azeroth. A note has been scribbled on the page. Pathetic. What sort of saviors of the universe failed to notice that their efforts were being undermined by one of their own? As the Titans made their way across the primordial landscape, they encountered a number of hostile elemental beings. These elementals who worshipped a race of unfathomably evil beings known only as the Old Gods vowed to drive the Titans back and keep their world inviolate from the invader's metallic touch. You see this? This is where a part of my speculation comes from from their invaders' metallic touch, suggesting that the beings were mortal before the titans arrived, then turned into metal, and then turned back into flesh, suggesting the old gods may actually be our true creators, which, by the way, is what Ilgonoth tells us, if you guys don't remember. Anyways, a note has been scribbled on the page. Evil? According to whom? It was these titans who maligned the glory of the Black Empire. Now, all of this, by the way, is done by Nalfarian himself. The it's interesting, though, that they say it was these titans who maligned the glory of the Black Empire. The Pantheon, disturbed by the old gods' penchant for evil, waged war upon the ele elementals and their dark masters. The old gods' army were led by the most powerful elemental lieutenants, Ragnaros, the Fire Lord, Therizane, the Stone Mother, Alakir, the Wind Lord, and Neptalon, 
the Tidehunter. A note has been scribbled on the page. They looked upon the most impressive empire in existence and hated they hadn't made it themselves. In a fit of jealousy, they tore it asunder. This is kind of confirmed by the tier book, FYI. Uh, yeah, this book is in-game. You get it from the vaults. Um, the book of tier... They hunted heretics. This would be fellow Titan Keepers. They hunted them to... Yes, this is the annotated book. Uh, they hunted these heretics all the way to Avaloran because the heretics seem to have grasped a fundamental truth, which is that the Titans did not create Azeroth or any of the beings on Azeroth, that it had existed before the titans had arrived and it is tear that says nothing can exist until it has been ordered their chaotic forces raged across the face of the world and clashed with colossal titans though the elementals were powerful beyond mortal comprehension their combined forces could not stop the mighty titans one by one the elemental lords fell and their forces dispersed a notice is scribbled on the page. The Titans do love to make themselves seem grandiose. History is, as always, written by the victor. Suggesting this might not be true. Interesting. The Pantheon shattered the old gods' citadels and chained the five evil gods far beneath the surface of the world. Without the old gods' power to keep their raging spirits bound to the physical world, the elementals were banished to an abyssal plane, where they would contend with one another for all eternity. With the elementals' departure, nature calmed, and the world settled into a peaceful harmony. The titans saw that the threat was contained and set to work. Fools! The power of the, element, uh, the elements was not so easily contained, nor could they bind the influence of the old gods. The peace the Tyson, titans offered came only through oppression. I am inclined to agree, by the way. The Titans are a very oppressive force, in my opinion. The Titans empowered a number of races to help them fashion the world, to help them carve out the fathomless caverns beneath the earth. The Titans created the dwarf-like earthen from magical living stone to help them dredge out the seas and lift the land from the seafloor the Titans created the immense but gentle sea giants. For many ages, the Titans moved and shaped the Earth. Until at last, there rem remained one perfect continent. A note is scribbled on the page. The author of this tome is either a liar or a fool. Were they truly ignorant of that which lies beyond the waves? Or were they merely commanded to spread Titan propaganda? Something very interesting here. The Titans empowered a number of races to help them fashion the world, to help them carve out the fathomless caverns beneath the earth. The Titans created the dwarf-like earthen from magical living stone to help them dredge out the seas and lift the land from the sea floor. The Titans created the immense but gentle sea giants. For many ages, the Titans moved and shaped the earth until at last, there remained one perfect continent, suggesting that Kalimdor, the land of eternal stars, 
is at first very much artificial. So this would suggest that that map we saw right in the beginning, you know, the map in the Chronicles that showcases what Kalimdor looked like and where the old gods ruled, it would suggest that all of this is wrong. This is not actually how the old god. This is not how the world looked when the old gods were on it. Kalimdor is a fabrication. It is artificially created. Yeah, the Black Empire map. Although the Black Empire map was not drawn by the Black Empire, at least not what we know about. It, it, it comes from the Chronicles, therefore it is the Titans that drew it, right? Well, according to this, it is the dwarfs that were made. The, the dwarfs were made by the Titans, but as I've already explained, uh, the book just earlier, um, Nalfarian says that the Titans are lying, that the flesh were here long before the Titans arrived. And that the titans, the, the flesh, feared the titans' metallic touch. The, this is why they rebelled against the titans. Um, and what's interesting is how Nalfarian says the author of this tome is either a liar or a fool. Were they truly ignorant of that which lies beyond the waves? Or were they merely commanded to spread titan propaganda? Suggesting there is a massive world beyond the waves and that might be what Avaloran is what if Avaloran was the original Azeroth and the titans through their ordering sort of excluded Avaloran and built a new world and this was now the world that they would call Azeroth and Avaloran was just completely excluded from the from the uh, the history books, so to speak. Because beyond the waves can have two meanings. Beyond the waves can either mean when you look out beyond the waves, there is something on the other side, so far across the ocean. Beyond the waves can mean below, but that it will usually then be noted as below the waves or beneath the waves. So I'm inclined here to believe beyond meaning far out rather than deep below because deep below you can say beyond the waves as in below but usually below would then state beneath the waves or below the waves not beyond the waves so to speak but you know sometimes writing can be weird so it could mean both of those things but i'm i'm sort of on of the opinion that beyond the waves means far out at the continent's center, the Titans crafted a lake of uh, scintillating energies. The lake, which they named the Well of Eternity, was to, be found, um, was to be the fount of life for the world. Its potent energies would nurture the bones of the world and empower life to take root in the land's rich soil. Over time, plants, trees, monsters, and creatures of every kind began to thrive on the primordial continent. The Titans wounded the world with their recklessness then insisted it was done by design, preposterous. It was the old gods who nurtured the flesh of this world, not the titans. That they had to hide it. Uh, Keisu, I think that's exactly it. The titans are close-minded. 
they they refuse to accept anything that has not been ordered yet as created. Uh, it has to be ordered first, and it appears as if for them it's far easier to just start anew. Build something yourself to make sure that it is perfect in every way, in the way that you want it to be, and that's the end of it. At least that's that's what I'm getting from this. As twilight fell on the final day of their labors, the Titans named the continent Kalimdor, land of eternal starlight. Ah yes, the Titans' final erasure of the wonders that once existed. They even stole away the land's true name and replaced it with one of their own. I know there's many people that don't like this. I know there's many people that believe that this is retcons. Because there are many people that want to believe that the Titans are actually a force for good in our world, right? Stefan, by the way, thanks for the sub, man. Really appreciate it. Welcome to the channel, bro. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope that you will enjoy your time here. Um, to my mind... I view this as perfect because there is a reason why you shouldn't trust the Titans and why we shouldn't trust the old gods or basically why we shouldn't trust any of the cosmological forces. None of the cosmological forces were created for us. They were created for something far larger. They were created to keep the universe in balance. That's it. That's their job. For them, our happiness or our existence is of little interest. They genuinely don't care. And we have actual evidence of this in Ulduar um, with Algalon. Algalon wants to reoriginate the world. That, by the way, is genocide of all mortal races. It is the destruction of anything that is flesh. That is reorigination. It allows for everything to start from scratch. Killing anything that isn't metal, effectively. So clearly, these guys do not care about us in any way, shape, or form. Their job and only job is to order things. If you're in the way of that, they do away with you, or they turn you into an ordered mind mindless husk. The same goes for the old gods. Don't think for a second that the old gods have some divine love for you and me. Because their job is a little bit harder to define than order, to be fair. Like you guys know, I've been struggling quite a bit with the idea of the cosmological forces... Because I'm not entirely sure where the cosmological forces fit into. They not all of them make sense. So I can sort of understand. I can sort of understand order because without order, chaos can be problematic. But I also understand chaos because if you don't have chaos, order can become problematic. So they do sort of keep each other in balance, and they both have a, a reason for existence. Especially when you look at life, when you include life finally in that and death. Death is so that life can actually exist, because if you just have life with no death, 
you would eventually have mass problems because there would be too many souls, too many lives, too many beings. Uh, it, it would just consume the universe upon itself. So you'd kind of need death in order to keep that equilibrium. But this is where disorder in the foul comes in because disorder kills life, but then allows for new life. So it's kind of like a, a, a forest fire. Forest fires can be incredibly good for the forest because you have, for example, trees that will only grow once something has burnt. It doesn't grow um, if, if the field hasn't been burnt yet. Um, you know, and and it, it allows for new life to sort of spread. So this is where disorder comes in. So it, it, it all serves each other. Light kind of makes sense because light, the sun, you need that energy so you can kind of see it. But then you get to shadow, which you could argue, well... You can't just have light, because if the sun shone 24 hours a day, it would scorch everything. So shadow is sort of like its opposite. But where the hell does void fit into this whole thing? Because void is nothingness. It sort of opposes everything that the other cosmological forces wishes to do. But it itself doesn't appear to do anything. It, what does it want to do? What is its purpose? Does that make sense? Well, it's actually a good point because you, so you're asking a very fundamental question. You can't have something with nothing contrasting it. And technically, you can't really, because basically you have something because of five of the cosmological forces that together create this something. But then you have a, a, a sixth force that basically contrasts all of the other five, but not to add to it, but rather to take away from it in its entirety. Like, all of the other forces whilst also taking away from it does add to the system except for void which doesn't seem to add anything it it, it, it appears to just take away from it and, and that really is the I, I don't i don't quite understand how void fits into the the universe maybe i'm just not smart enough to see it but i genuinely don't understand how it fits into the universe Younger ones with opposing viewpoints regarding the origins of life. It, it probably is that. Void is meant to exist. The light to oppose the void. Void is meant to just exist. Void is nothing. First comes nothing. You have black walls that it doesn't make sense. Because... You can have nothing exist on the peripheries of existence. So where, you know, outside of existence there is nothing. But you have nothing inside of existence. The old gods, for example, clearly serve the void because they say it themselves. They serve the void lords. But they are something. And they didn't come to Azeroth to consume Azeroth. They built an entire empire on Azeroth. That doesn't sound like something that nothing would do. Does it? Venture, it's possible, but I don't know.
the void could be misunderstood. That is entirely possible. It could be that we're all misunderstanding it. It could even be that the void has been named incorrectly. The void seems to be the one that doesn't make sense. Let me put it that way. I understand shadow. I understand light. I even understand holy within the light. It's it's a magical source of the light. I don't understand like I don't understand the void and its position within the shadow realm. Because shadow. I don't know if you could make the argument that shadow is entirely void. Because shadow is in a way the void of light, right? Because if you have light shining and you have an object in front of the light, that darkness behind it is where light is the void. It's the void of light. Therefore, it is shadow. But void is also something that cannot be filled. It's the void, the endless void, the empty, right? It's completely empty. And shadow is not empty. You can have things within shadow. So the two doesn't seem to absolutely make sense. But maybe we were just never meant to look that far into it. Maybe we're reading too much into it. And it's not really meant to be taken that literally. They still don't fit. Yeah, but Waldron, I wouldn't use the Titan saying it is true. In fact, where I am in my life now, if the Titans say it, I'm inclined not to believe it. That's usually my thing. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, this brings an end to the first of hopefully many show shows i did a poll over on twitter asking which days would suit you guys best uh sundays mondays or wednesdays so if you want you can join me over on um over on twitter and just tell me below that tweet i don't i think the poll is over now but you can still just tell me there which days you prefer i prefer mondays because I feel like weekends is a very weird day to sort of do stuff like this. But it, it really is up to you. Uh, if if enough people tell me they want Sundays, we'll, we'll bring it back on Sundays. Sundays can just sometimes be a bit tough. Uh, it is shorter. It's not as long as the old show show. But at the same time, I feel like I wanted to make it shorter. I didn't want to go as long as the last time because one of the main criticisms i got with the first show show was that a lot of it wasn't speculation a lot of it wasn't uh lore like oftentimes we would be sitting here for almost an hour just you know talking and i do that on twitch so if you just want to hang out and chat and talk about world of warcraft lore and ask questions and stuff that's where twitch is uh, i really want to keep this as sort of like a very condensed discussion about world of warcraft about the lore uh different lore elements different gameplay elements stuff like that and just a bit of a way to hang out and you know sort of touch base in in 
whatever fashion we can. If you enjoyed this, please remember to hit the like button. It really seriously does help out. Uh, yeah, YouTube does not push videos unless you like it. Uh, don't ask me why. Apparently, that's an important notion. To all of the people that joined the DJ Nation tonight, I really appreciate you for the super chat free. Thank you so much. Support like that is what makes videos and live streams like this one possible. So I really appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. Um, I'll obviously see you guys throughout the week because I'm going to be live streaming over on Twitch. Uh, so join us there. If you haven't already, the link should all be in the description down below. And um, I might be uploading all of this to podcasts like pay, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all the rest of it as soon as I can figure out how to do um, all of those uploads in one spot. So hopefully you'll be able to listen to this as a podcast fairly soon ladies and gentlemen as always i want to thank you from the bottom of my heart thank you so much for hanging out with me for spending your morning your afternoon your evening with me it's been an absolute pleasure i will see all of you in the next one that's next monday peace out